we conclude our study on the Arkansas renovation this evening, and again let me read for you the fourth term of communion which from which we find the Arkansas renovation mentioned. That public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. That the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution. And that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. And in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 was agreeable to the Word of God. Last time we met, we considered events leading up to the Arkansas renovation of 1712. I'd like to, first of all this evening, focus on key acts of Parliament preceding the Arkansas renovation. Certain acts of Parliament which definitely set the stage for the renovation at Arkansas in 1712. And before we look at uh, those acts of Parliament, there's several of them, let me just say by way of uh, preliminary remarks, some of this couple remarks that would be review from uh, last week and kind of lead us into our study for this evening. In 1690, the Revolution Settlement established in Scotland a so-called Presbyterianism, denuded or stripped of all its constitution from the Second Reformation except the Westminster Confession of Faith. We mentioned that last time we met in the Revolution Settlement the only document that was a part of the constitution of that revolution church was the confession of faith. So there, were, there was no national covenant, no solemn league and covenant, no shorter catechism, no larger catechism, no directory for the public worship of God, no form of presbyterial church government, no acts of general assembly, between the glorious years of 1638 and 1649, no testimony of the saints and martyrs of the covenanted Reformation. And thus, what we have in the Revolution Settlement is a gross backsliding from the Word of God for all of those documents are agreeable to the Word of God gross backsliding from the Word of God, the only infallible constitution for faith and life. One other preliminary remark. In 1690, at the very first meeting of the pretended General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, this uh, General Assembly that met after the so-called glorious Revolution of 1688, attempts were specifically made by the society people. Now, the society people are the faithful covenanters. Uh, They didn't have presbyteries because they didn't have ministers. Uh, Their ministers were were all killed. Uh, And uh, 
Richard Cameron, uh, Donald Cargill, James Rennick, uh, these ministers were killed. And so they were left without ministers and these faithful covenanters, the society people, approached, petitioned this pretended general assembly at this point and uh, uh, called them to to renew, to, to uh, look at the covenants, to go back to the constitution of the Second Reformation, to consider the backsliding and the sins that had been committed and perpetrated over during the reigns of Charles II and James II and up to that point. Not only did the society people petition, but several ministers also petitioned. John Hepburn, Alexander Shields, Thomas Linning, and William Boyd petitioned this General Assembly to own the cause of the covenanted Reformation and the Constitution of the Second uh, Reformation. But they were silenced. They were not allowed to present their petition or to address this assembly concerning these matters and issues. This assembly was taking a very clear stance uh, contrary to the covenanted reformation. In fact, rather than reestablishing Presbyterianism on the Acts of Parliament during the zenith of its reformation, 1638 to 1649, the revolution settlement established Presbyterianism on the Act of Parliament 1592, they went back before the Zenith period, the Second Reformation, to establish Presbyterianism according to an Act of Parliament in 1592, when all of the Reformation within the Church, which occurred during those years of the Second Reformation, had not yet occurred, 1592. And so that's the Act of Parliament that they went back to do, to establish Presbyterianism, deliberately bypassing the, the attainments of the Second Reformation. <clears throat> now, that brings us then uh, to, this, um, to the key acts of Parliament preceding the Arkansas Renovation. First of all, the Claim of Right, 1689. The Claim of Right. This act declared James II to be a usurper to the throne for his being an avowed papist and persecutor of his people and thus forfeiting any legal title to the crown, which in fact was what the covenanters had maintained all along. Thus the act provided the grounds for William's accession to the throne of England as well as providing a bill of rights for the subjects of England, Scotland, and Ireland. A very interesting note uh, that was made by the secretary of the society meetings of the uh, Covenanters. He recorded this in his account of the year 1689 concerning the claim of right. I quote, this is also remarkable that the meeting of the estates having by an act 
that is the claim of right, declared King James to have forfeited his right to the crown, gave the same reasons for it that the United Societies, that is the United Societies of the Covenanters, formally had given, and for which they protested against his installment. That's cited in the book, The Covenanters, on page 523. <clears throat> and so uh, we see that actually the very arguments, the very position that the Covenanters had made, maintained all along, uh, the Parliament, uh, the Estates of Scotland came to acknowledge publicly. In other words, uh, the Covenanters all along maintained because they had the courage. They were dying for their conviction. Most of these other people simply were swept, swept along with the current and unwilling to walk contrary to the multitude. They walked in line with the multitude into error. Well, this illegal act, the claim of right, allowed William into office without his having to take the coronation oath of Scotland or having to take the National Covenant or the Solemn League and Covenant. After Charles I, you'll remember, had been defeated by the armies of Cromwell and he had found sanctuary on the Isle of Wight in 1647, you'll recall that the Scots made it clear to him that they would not allow him to exercise any further rule over them until he swore the solemn league and covenant. Likewise, when Charles II, his son, came into power, he was not permitted to rule in Scotland in the year 1650 until he too had taken the coronation oath and sworn the covenants. However, William was allowed to come into power, to reign as the king uh, over Scotland, well, England and Scotland and Ireland, but uh, reign over Scotland without having to take the coronation oath or the covenants. This act, the claim of right, also established Presbyterianism in Scotland on these grounds. It is agreeable to the inclinations of the people rather than it is agreeable to the word of God. In other words, the grounds for the establishment of Presbyterianism in Scotland was, quote, again, I read, it is agreeable to the inclinations of the people, not it's agreeable to the word of God. The second act that we want to mention is the Act of Security in 1707. This was an act that preceded the National Union of England and Scotland. Now, you'll remember that previously Scotland and England had served under the same kings. King James I, Charles I, Charles II... James II, William III, William and Mary, in fact, they had served, uh, the, the same monarchs had ruled over both England and Scotland, but they had had separate parliaments in each nation. They were separate nations, they were separate kingdoms, though having the same monarch, 
But under the Treaty of Union, which we'll look at in just a moment, in 1707, England and Scotland were about to become one nation and one kingdom. The act of security was intended to alleviate any fears that the Scots might have concerning their rights, and particularly their rights of religion. Concern over those rights being denied. The act of security guaranteed three things, specifically. Number one, it guaranteed that Presbyterianism, as established by the Revolution Settlement, would remain unalterably secure as the established Church of Scotland. Second, that none of the subjects of Scotland would ever be required to take an oath, test, or subscription contrary to Presbyterian doctrine, worship, or government. And third, that all succeeding rulers to the throne of England would be required to swear and subscribe the same statements, the ones I've just referred to. What was protected by this act was not, however, the Presbyterianism of the Second Reformation. Remember that, because that's not the Presbyterianism that was established. All that was protected was the pseudo-Presbyterianism of the Glorious Revolution. So that's the act of security. We'll see why that's particularly significant in just a moment. The third act is the Treaty of Union, the Treaty of Union, 1707. This act forged a national union between Scotland and England that exists even until the present time, today, though there are efforts presently in Scotland to terminate uh, this union. <clears throat> this wicked act the Treaty of Union, this wicked act, placed Scotland under the rule of prelacy and Episcopalianism. That which the covenants bound covenanters to oppose was actually, in this act, established over them, namely prelacy. They were to uproot prelacy, and it was prelacy that was established over them through the union of the two nations into one nation because the national religion of uh, England was the Church of England. I mean, the national church was the Church of England, was prelacy. And it began as a result of the union to have more and more and more influence upon the Church of Scotland, as we will see. Now the English monarch who was already uh, considered the head of the Church of England, and the Parliament would control the established Church of Scotland to even greater degrees than even before. Now, this is just five years, 1707, five years before the Arkansas renovation. These are the events and the acts that are leading up to 
of the renovation at Arkansas. Okay, the fourth act. The abjuration oath, 1711. Abjuration oath. By this oath, all subjects of Britain, that is England, Ireland, Scotland, all subjects of Britain were to disown the son of James II, who is called the old pretender, the son of James II, as having no claim to the throne of Britain due to the fact that he, like his father, James II, was an avowed papist. And in so doing, by this abjuration oath, in so doing, all subjects were to swear allegiance to a monarch that belonged to the Church of England, which was again a violation of the covenants wherein prelacy is to be extirpated, not established. You see, the covenanters, those who were faithful, refused to swear allegiance to, to a monarch who was one who had not sworn uh, the um, uh, covenants, had not taken the coronation oath. They would not swear allegiance to these monarchs because this was a covenanted nation. And so this particular oath required the citizens and subjects to, to swear allegiance to the reigning monarch of England, who at that time was Queen Anne. This is one year before the Arkansas renovation. And then, fifthly, this is the last act that we'll look at leading up to the Arkansas renovation, the Toleration Act, 1712. By this act, Episcopalian ministers were allowed to serve in congregations within Scotland. It was also instituted by Parliament at this time that a congregation of people could not determine who their pastor would be, but it might be determined by wealthy patrons who brought in prelates into the Scottish church. It was reestablished that uh, what was called patronages. Wealthy patrons would, due to their influence, due to their money, would bring in whom they desired, whom they chose to be the uh, pastor of a congregation. And by so doing, they brought in Episcopal Episcopalian prelates into, into the church. Now, this is just five years after Scotland had been guaranteed by the Act of Security, 1707, that Presbyterianism even the pseudo-Presbyterianism that was established in the Revolution Settlement would not be at risk under a prolactical uh, English Parliament. However, Episcopalianism was intruded into the Church of England or into the Church of Scotland. The same year, this is the same year as the Arkansas Renovation, now, it's an interesting irony, I think, that these covenant breakers of the Scottish church, the glorious revolution, these covenant breakers lived to experience 
the covenant breaking of Queen Anne and the English Parliament. And so, just one concluding remark concerning these acts before we move on to the next main point. When the covenants were left buried and not owned by the Church of Scotland, gross defection continued to grow until the spiritual freedom of the church was almost entirely taken from them by an Erastian monarch and parliament. You see, when they, when they buried their covenants, when they did not own and subscribe the covenants, tyranny reigned. Tyranny in government and tyranny in the church. The spiritual freedom of the church was lost. And by these various steps, she lost more and more and more of her freedom. You see, it was these covenants, the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, that the Church of Scotland refused to renew that actually were the very covenants that would have protected her from all of her loss of freedom which occurred under England, the Church of England and the Parliament. From all of these Erastian intrusions. Alright, the second main point for this evening I want to consider very briefly the primary architect of the Arkansas renovation, John McMillan. He was born in 1669 and he died in 1753. Now, I believe it's necessary to say something about John McMillan because it has been stated many times over that he did not accurately represent the views of the Westminster Divines and the Church of Scotland of the Second Reformation. Some have looked upon Macmillan as being a separatist, as being an extremist, as being a schismatic. For example, even Thomas Boston, in a sermon entitled The Sin of Schism, attacked Macmillan. And yet, he himself, a few years later, found himself seceding from the very church that he had accused Macmillan of leaving. And he found himself in the same position and arguing very, very much the same arguments that Macmillan had argued previously, that this church is no true church because it has left its covenanted reformation. But Macmillan was not a separatist. Macmillan was not a schismatic. To the contrary, he and the faithful society people, the Society of Covenanters, represented, in fact, the true Church of Scotland, though they be ever so few compared to the majority, they represented the true Church of Scotland. Well, what was Macmillan's constitution? In other words, what I want you to see 
If you understand, we know from previous studies what was the, co the constitution of the covenanted reformation. What was Macmillan's constitution? We've seen what the constitution was of the, of the uh, Revolution Settlement Church. The church settled after the glorious, so-called glorious revolution. We've seen what their constitution was. They had stripped away everything but the confession of faith. What was Macmillan's constitution? Well, I quote from his own words, his protestation, which he delivered on his behalf and, and Mr. McNeil's behalf concerning their, their own uh, conviction in this area. And I, it's much larger, so I'm just taking a portion out of this uh, protestation. But anyway, he declares, he and Mr. McNeil, we declare to the world our hearty desire to embrace and adhere to the written word of God contained in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the only and complete rule and adequate umpire of faith and manners and whatever is founded thereupon and agreeable thereunto, such as our confession of faith, larger and shorter catechisms, directory for worship, covenants, national and solemn league, the acknowledgement of sin and engagement to duties. That document, the, the acknowledgement of sin and engagement to duties, was a document issued by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1648, just prior or at the time of their renewal of the Solemn League and Covenant. Uh, the next... Uh, continuing on with uh, his constitution, Causes of God's Wrath. That was also a document issued by the uh, uh, General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1648 at the time of the renewal of the uh, Solemn League and Covenant. He continues, And the ordinary and perpetual officers of Christ's appointment as pastors, doctors, elders, and deacons in the form of church government, commonly called Presbyterian, all the documents of the Second Reformation. Those were his constitution. He continues, Next we declare our firm adherence to all the faithful contendings for truth, whether of old or of late, by ministers and professors, and against whatever sinful courses, whether more refined or more gross, and particularly the public resolutions. In other words, he testifies against the public resolutions. Remember the de debate between the protesters and the resolutioners. The resolutioners said that those who were not faithful to the covenant should be allowed to hold office, to, to hold uh, offices in the church or in the civil government. The protesters said no, they violated the, the covenants. They cannot hold office. Well, he testifies against the public resolutions. He, he uh, continues, Cromwell's usurpation. He testifies against Cromwell's usurping authority and power over Scotland. The toleration of sectaries. In other words, though the uh, Cromwellian government tolerated the various uh, uh, sects um, within the nation, whereas the covenants said that sects were not to be allowed to, to uh, continue within England, Ireland, and Scotland lest they undermine 
the whole covenanted reformation. The toleration of sectaries and heresies in his time and against the sacrilegious usurpation and tyranny of Charles II, the unfaithfulness of ministers and professors in complying with him and accepting his indulgences first and last, and in a word to everything agreeable to the matter of this our testimony as it is declared in page 25 and 26 of the Informatory Vindication. That was written by James Rennick, the Informatory Vindication, printed in the year 1687. And one more brief uh, paragraph. Likewise, we declare our adherence unto the testimony against the abominable toleration granted by the Duke of York, that is James II, and given in to the ministers at Edinburgh by that faithful minister and now glorified martyr, Mr. James Rennick, January the 17th, 1688. And to whatever wrestlings or contendings have been made or testimonies given against the endeavors of any in their subtle and sedulous striving to insinuate and engage us in a sinful confederacy with a malignant cause contrary to the word of God, our solemn league and covenant and testimony of this church. You see, his constitution was the same as those of the Second Reformation. His constitution was simply the Westminster Standards and those of the Church of Scotland of the Second Reformation. Macmillan's boyhood was spent among the covenanters of the United Societies. His parents were probably members of the United Society of Covenanters. And he was thoroughly acquainted with the faith of his covenanted forefathers. And in their paths he walked. And so we might say to attack the views of Macmillan is to attack the biblical standards issued by the Westminster Assembly of Divines. To attack Macmillan is to attack the Church of Scotland of the Second Reformation from 1638 to 1649. To attack Macmillan is to attack Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly. To attack Macmillan is to attack John Brown of Blumfrey, who was a student of Rutherford. It's to attack Mr. McWard, who was the secretary for Rutherford at the Westminster Assembly. It's to attack Richard Cameron, who was ordained by Brown of Blumfrey and McWard. An interesting historical note, some have also said Richard Cameron was uh, one who departed from the ways of the Second uh, Reformation also, but uh, it was actually the student and the secretary for Rutherford, who was a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, uh, Brown and McWard, who ordained Cameron. They were the ones who ordained Cameron. There is a line of dissent here. And these men are faithfully, in this dissent, in this line, they, these are men who are faithful to the Second Reformation. And finally, to, 
to attack McMillan is to attack Mr. James Rennick. I want to, we haven't said a whole lot about uh, Rennick, but let me read for you just, uh, it's a, maybe a, a little lengthy quote to take a few minutes, but I, I think it gives you a real good uh, idea of Rennick and um, what kind of uh, individual this man was. He was actually 26 years old when he was martyred for the faith, put to death, very young man. This uh, begins with his, uh, his imprisonment. The last night of the month, he lodged with a friend in Edinburgh. On the morning of the 1st of February, the house was beset with soldiers in the employment of the persecuting council. When Rennick attempted to escape, he was arrested near Ca- the Cowgate and was carried by Graham, the captain of the guard, before a quorum of the council by whom he was committed to close prison and laid in irons. When he stood in the presence of those who had issued against him fierce proclamations and had sought his life, they were surprised at his youthful appearance and his comely countenance. And one exclaimed, quote, Is this the boy, Rennick, that the whole nation was so troubled with? Rennick replied with only a quiet smile. On the 3rd of February, he was brought before the council and received his indictment. In it, he was charged with the casting off the fear of God, disowning the king's authority, preaching in the fields, and teaching the people to refuse to pay cess, that is, taxes. Uh, and specifically, I should note, the taxes he, he uh, and uh, the covenanters refused to pay were taxes that were specifically taken for the purpose of of uh, putting uh, for persecution of the covenanters. And so those were the taxes that they refused to pay. And uh, he's also charged with uh, teaching the people to refuse to pay uh, cess and to carry arms in self-defense. He taught that uh, it was biblical to carry arms in order to defend yourself against the attacks uh, of uh, the king. It is related of Rennick when he became a prisoner that though he had grace given willingly to offer his life to confirm his testimony, he yet dreaded torture. Having in prayer freely surrendered his life to God, he obtained in answer the assurance that enemies would not have the power to inflict on him torture. This he afterwards told his mother in prison shortly before his execution when she was expressing concern about seeing his head and hands on the ports of the city. He said he was persuaded that the persecutors would not be permitted to torture his body nor touch one hair of his head farther. He was so open and candid in his answers that the members of the court were to some extent favorably impressed and this had doubtless some influence in preventing him from being tortured. He enjoyed so much of divine presence from his entrance into prison till his execution that to his mother he said, He could hardly pray, being so much taken up with praise and ravished with the joy of the Lord. When before the court on the 14th February, he confessed to all in the indictment, save the first article, charging him with having cast off all fear of God. In other words, he said that he was uh, uh, guilty of, of of disowning the king's authority, 
preaching in the fields, teaching the people to refuse to pay cess and, and uh, to carry arms in self-defense. He said, yep, that's exactly what I taught. But I'm not guilty of casting off all fear of God. He said, quote, it is because I feared to offend God and to violate his law that I am here today standing to be condemned. When asked about disowning the king's authority, he answered like a true Protestant and a heroic patriot. He said, I own all authority that hath its prescriptives and limitations from the word of God, but I cannot own this usurper as lawful king, seeing both by the word of God such a one is incapable to bear rule, and likewise by the ancient laws of the kingdom, which admit none to the crown of Scotland until he swear to defend the Protestant religion, which a man of his profession cannot do. At the close of his examination, when asked if he would subscribe his testimony, he did so with protestation that he subscribed it as his testimony, but not as recognizing the authority of his judges. When condemned to be executed in the grass market, on the Friday following, he was asked by the Justice General if he desired a longer time. He declared, it was all one to him. If the time was protracted, it was welcome. If it was shortened, it was welcome to him. His master's time was the best. Without his knowledge, he was reprieved for ten days till the 17th of February, as the persecutors were to some degree sated with blood and perhaps somewhat troubled in conscience by the demeanor of the youthful confessor. After his condemnation was uh, pronounced, many attempts were made to shake his constancy. Several petitions were written for him, but he refused resolutely to sign any of them. It was at one time proposed to him that his dropping a few drops of ink on paper would be sufficient. This, however, he promptly refused, alleging that it would be so far an owning of wicked authority and a renunciation of his whole testimony. His friends were denied access to him in prison. Paper and ink were removed from him and also part of his dying testimony, which he had written. Other, others, persons in authority, prelates, curates, and popish priests visited him. His Christian firmness resisted all their attempts to make him swerve from his principles while several of them were struck and overawed by the power of his singular wisdom, gentleness, and unaffected goodness. Viscount Tarbet, a man of intellect, but noted for his lax accommodating principles, said of Rennick, after several times visiting him, quote, He was the stiffest maintainer of his principles that ever came before us. Others we used always to cause at one time or another to waver but him we could never move. We could never make him yield, nor vary in the least. He was of old Knox's principles. <clears throat> and Mr. McMillan was one who walked in the paths of, of James Rennick, as we even heard alluded to in his protestation. He alluded to Rennick's informatory vindication and to his contending for the faith. The third point is that we want to cover this evening, the third main point, is the content of the Arkansas renovation. This edition of the Arkansas renovation, which we 
have was issued by the Reformed Presbytery at its own covenant renewal in 1880. The Arkansas renovation is divided into five sections. The Arkansas renovation itself is divided into five sections. The first section is the historical section, or the historical introduction as it's called there, in which the events, sermons, objections to covenant renewal, and the Lord's Supper are all summarized. I think of particular interest in this section are the words Macmillan used in fencing the Lord's table. Listen closely to what Mr. Macmillan said. Mr. Macmillan, who walked again in the paths of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, in the paths of the Church of Scotland of the Second Reformation, Rutherford, Brown, Womfrey, Cameron, Rennick, he said at the, at the Lord's Supper, I excommunicate and debar from this holy table of the Lord all divisors, commanders, users, or approvers of any religious worship not instituted by God in his word, all tolerators and countenancers thereof. And by consequence, I debar and excommunicate from this holy table of the Lord Queen and Parliament, and all under them who spread and propagate or tolerate a false and superstitious worship, I and until they repent. Furthermore, concerning those who oppose the covenants and the work of Reformation, Macmillan trumpeted these faithful words. He says, Furthermore, I excommunicate and debar all who are opposers of our covenants and covenanted reformation and all that have taken oaths contrary to our covenants and such particularly as are takers of the oath of abjuration, whether ministers or others until they repent. As I said, Macmillan simply practiced in saying and in using this kind of terminology, using these words of debarring and excommunicating. And I, I should say that I don't think he was issuing the greater excommunication. He was using, when he said that he debars and excommunicates, he was using the lesser excommunication, that is, to debar from the Lord's table, not to cast out of the visible church. He wasn't using the greater excommunication, doesn't appear, but rather the lesser excommunication that the, these people who had committed these sins could not come to the Lord's table. But he simply practiced in so doing, the close communion which was practiced by our covenanted and Presbyterian forefathers toward those who abjured or renounced the biblical covenants and the reformation that had been instituted. You remember uh, all that we have said up to this point uh, about how when the covenants were made, those who did not swear the covenants were barred from the Lord's table. 
There were censures issued against them by the church. And if they became very obstinate and sought to undermine the covenant ref- covenanted reformation, did not take the covenants, spoke against them, uh, that there could be uh, civil cen- uh, censures brought against them as well by the civil magistrate. Now, Macmillan defends his actions and what he did and what he said in debarring the queen because this really got him into a lot of hot water. You can imagine, you know, saying that he debarred from the Lord's table the queen and parliament and all those under them. This is what he said that this was no presumptuous and rebellious arrogance is evident because the sins for which, we, for which he debarred Queen and Parliament and all others guilty of them are proven from Scripture to be gross breaches of God's law. And every violation thereof persisted in without repentance is a sufficient cause in the opinion of Protestant divines to debar and exclude from the Lord's table. Now it is certain that even those ministers of the established church of Scotland, that is the Revolution Church of Scotland, who make such slanderous accusation against the work for this particular, do the same thing in effect every time they administrate this ordinance. For as can be proved, if they please to require do deny it. They excommunicate from the table all guilty of such sins as are forbidden in the second commandment, according as they are specified in the foresaid catechism. And so by an infallible consequence, they excommunicate the queen and parliament, who are grossly guilty of the most of them. Only they have not the courage ingenuously and freely to own and express the consequence but that it follows natively and necessarily from the premises, even according to their own principles, they will never be able to disprove. You see, what he's saying is that the, the uh, uh, ministers within the established church of Scotland at that time, which was, again, a, a unfaithful, corrupted church. However, the ministers within that church exercised authority in debarring people from coming to the Lord's table every time the Lord's Supper was observed for various reasons, violations of God's law. They would keep people from coming to the Lord's table. Uh, Macmillan says, I have simply debarred from coming to the table those who have grossly violated the second commandment which pertains to worship, that we're only to worship God as he has instituted. That's all I've done. But I've had the courage to state who especially is guilty of this, namely the Queen and the Parliament. And so it is, uh, as he says here, Difficult, it would be nigh impossible to disprove that that was going on every single week or every time the Lord's Supper was observed by ministers. But he himself had the courage to say something about that with regard to the Queen and the Parliament. 
Samuel Rutherford, as we've said, uh, fully endorses this position as well that was practiced by Macmillan, <clears throat> as well by his actions. We noted that, uh, that he himself debarred from the table uh, on many occasions those who would not own the covenants when he was a, a minister while he was living. He would not serve the Lord's Supper with, with uh, a, a minister by the name of Wood because uh, Wood had uh, uh, compromised uh, the covenants and uh, so he would not even serve with a fellow minister the Lord's Supper uh, because of this. But he sa- states, uh, Rutherford states, uh, the same truth in the following comments. This is taken from a survey, uh, survey of a survey. He says, As for church members, they ought to be holy, and though all be baptized, be members, yet such as remain habitually ignorant after admonition are to be cast out, and though they be not cast out certainly as paralytic or rotten members, cannot discharge the functions of life. So those that are scandalous, ignorant, malignant, unsound in faith, lose their rights of suffrages, that is voting, in election of officers, and are to be debarred from the seals. For I continue, Rutherford says, those who are unsound in the faith, those who are scandalous, violators of God's law, can I come to the Lord's Supper? He says, nor can we defend our sinful practice in this. He's alluding to the sinful practice of of many of the ministers and many within the church at the time in which he was living. We cannot defend the sinful practice in this. It were our wisdom to repent of our taking in the malignant party. Malignant party, again, are covenant compromisers taking in the malignant party who shed the blood of the people of God and obstructed the work of God into places of trust in the church and state and the army, contrary to our covenants, they continuing still enemies. So that's the first major section in the Arkansas. It's the historical introduction. The second major section is the national covenant. But note in the National Covenant, when you have an opportunity, note there that changes have been made in order to conform to the present circumstances. For example, where it says, in the, um, this is one example, I'll give two examples, there are many examples of this. If you look in the Arkansas Renovation at the bottom of the page, you'll find various footnotes these were actually the changes that were made by Macmillan to accommodate to, uh, to, to the present circumstances in which Macmillan lived. For example, uh, in the uh, National Covenant, it says, And because we perceive that the quietness and stability of our religion in Kirk doth depend upon the safety and good behavior of the King's Majesty. Now, instead of writing the king's majesty, because at the time the National Covenant was written, the king's majesty 
was one which the covenanters could honor. They could give allegiance to the king's majesty at that time. But now, this is what, what Macmillan has footnoted. Instead of saying, uh, instead of saying the king's majesty, he substituted the lawful supreme magistrate. So, this is what uh, Macmillan uh, uh, substituted. And because we perceive that the quietness and stability of our religion and Kirk doth depend upon the safety and good behavior of the lawful supreme magistrate. And so he has made that kind of a change. There are other changes, uh, and again, you'll note those uh, in the... There's no change to the substance of the covenant, but simply to the circumstances that now pertain to the covenanters who were taking this covenant. They could not swear allegiance to the magistrate that was then ruling. Thus, they had to make these appropriate changes and say to the lawful supreme magistrate, not to just any magistrate. The third major section is the Solemn League and Covenant within the Akasai Renovation. And again, you can note changes that were made to conform to the present circumstances. For example, in the Solemn League and Covenant, the first four lines are omitted in the swearing of the covenant by Macmillan at, at Arkansas. Now, what are the first four lines? It says, We noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel and commons of all sorts in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland by the providence of God living under one king and being of one reformed religion. He omitted that because there weren't noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers, and commons of all sorts. Uh, they were simply a small remnant of common people. And so it was not the same people as originally covenanted that were now covenanting. It wasn't uh, the church and the state and all the ordinary people that were now covenanting. And therefore, that change to, uh, to conform to the circumstances at the time of the Arkansas renovation, those changes were made. The fourth main section of the Arkansas renovation is a solemn acknowledgement of public sins and breaches of the National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant. So acknowledgement of public sins and breaches of the covenants. And that uh, comprises several pages showing how they have violated, how they have sinned against God in violating their covenants with him. Fifthly, in the last uh, main section, is a solemn engagement to the duties contained in our National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant. So they not only acknowledged their sins, but also spoke of their engagements and their duties to follow in the uh, steps of the National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant. And so that is the last section of the Arkansas renovation. After that section, uh, there are a few more pages in, in, in the book that we have called the Arkansas Renovation. Those pages, however, were not uh, uh, words 
or a part of the covenant that was renewed at Arkansas, but they formed the the covenant that was renewed by the Reformed Presbytery in 1880. And so there are a few more uh, pages that follow that, but it's uh, it's the Reformed Presbytery's renovation where they state, again, their sins and how they have violated the covenants and their engagement to duty as well. And finally, this evening, let me just state, state this. It's kind of a summary of what we have seen leading up to the Arkansas renovation. You can see because of the course of defection from the time in which the Arkansas renovation, or from the time in which the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant were subscribed and sworn, you can see the steps of defection and corruption that were brought into the church. These men believed and were convinced that these were duties before God. Their covenants were biblical. And all Christians who had this covenant placed before them were required before God to swear it because it was a biblical covenant. No more could people in the Old Testament have refused to swear the covenant which Moses gave, or, or Nehemiah, or Josiah, or any of those other men of God. No more could, could the covenant, uh, the Solemn League and Covenant, and the National Covenant have been refused, and those covenants could have been refused, because these covenants were based upon the same principles, the same truths as those covenants were. And so, these men believing strongly that these were biblical duties that they owed to God, believed therefore that once they had sunk into gross defection from these covenants, that it was their duty to renew these covenants. They could not themselves, even if the nation as a whole would not renew the covenant, even if the church as a whole would not renew the covenant, they believed it was their duty as faithful covenanters. Even the children and grandchildren of those people who first swore those covenants as their posterity to renew those covenants because they were still binding upon them. And so the Arkansas renovation is an example and the reason it is one, it is fit into the fourth term of communion, it is an example of such a faithful covenant renewal. It gives us an example how we ought to proceed in covenant renewal. And that becomes a very, very important uh, document and example for us to follow. That's all that I have this evening. Uh, are there any questions that uh, that you would like to uh, uh, pose? Any questions uh, this evening?
All right. I guess we'll stop then. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.